0: That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to
1: discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common, when you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of This Show is All About You, an hour-long dig into conversation and exploration of the things that connect us as human beings, kind of getting under the surface of the things we normally talk about and the ways we talk about them, whether that's debate or argument or whatever it might be, and really getting to the heart of things. And uh, my guests every week uh, you know, epitomize that, and uh, hopefully the conversation is one that you can connect with Uh, in your own life, and would love to hear uh, from you about that. First of all, uh, if you are listening uh, to this live, uh, thank you so much for doing so. Really appreciate it. You can also download all episodes of This Show is All About You at your favorite podcast platform, in particular Podcast One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe, leave a review there for me. That would be fantastic. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, And you can also check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com, that features a lot of my writing as well as uh, episodes of this show to listen to and follow-up posts uh, from each episode uh, to learn a little more because even though we have an hour, I've learned that the conversation never quite fits into an hour. So, uh, And this week, I'm uh, very excited to welcome a longtime friend of mine uh, and collaborator uh, academically, uh, things like that, Dr. Kevin Simpson, who I will introduce uh, more formally at the other end of the news. But Kevin, great to see you here on Zoom. You're Zooming in from your home in Arkansas. And uh, yeah, good to see you. Thanks for being here.
2: Yeah, so good to see you. And it's been a long time, but uh, I'm looking forward to the next hour.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So thanks for joining us. And uh, uh, I will say at this point, Kevin is a professor of psychology at John Brown University in Arkansas and has just finished his academic year Uh, And graduated and graduated his uh, graduated his high school son uh, from high school. So it's a big moment in the Simpson family. Yeah. Oh, college. Am I that far behind?
2: We're launching that boy.
1: Oh my goodness. Okay. Then it has been a long time, Kevin. All right. 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 (laughs) Anyway, let's uh, let's uh, go ahead and jump into uh, today's conversation. But first, as always, let's check out the news of the week in the segment I call "What in the World Should We Be Talking About." All right, a lot going on of course and we're leading with Ukraine as usual.
0: С такими чувствами подлинного патриотизма поднимались за отечество ополченцы Минина и Пожарского. Шли в атаку на Бородинском поле, бились с врагом под Москвой и Ленинградом, Киевом и Минском, Сталинградом. And Kursk, and
1: that, of course, was President Vladimir Putin speaking earlier today at the Victory Day Parade in Red Square in Moscow. And you might have heard the names uh, in Russian, of course, of a number of Russian cities. And that's, of course, because uh, Putin was listing off the names of cities in the Soviet Union, including cities uh, in Ukraine that at the time were part of the Soviet Union that had been liberated by the Nazis. Uh, and, of course, May 9th, the end of the war in 1945, It is the central holiday in the existence of the Soviet Union, always has been since 1945. And of course, as I've talked about on this show a number of times, Putin's entire justification for his attack on Ukraine is based in a very incomplete, to be very generous and bogus, to be accurate, uh, view of the history of the Soviet Union's war against the Nazis. And uh, interestingly enough today, a number of commentators are pointing towards this as maybe a major day in terms of a major announcement Uh, because the war is going so poorly for Russia. Some speculated that Putin was going to make a big announcement about maybe formally declaring war on Ukraine instead of calling it a special military operation, or he might call up uh, a mass mobilization of all uh, Russian young men to fight uh, or make some some outright threats against the West. He did none of those things. Uh, And that by itself is notable. Uh, as is the fact that he didn't mention Ukraine at all by name. Uh, In fact, uh, he talked about Ukraine as if it were always a rightful part of Russia. Um, Not all that surprising in that sense. Um, And maybe not all that surprising behind closed doors in Russia, if anybody's willing to admit it, is that the war in the East and in the South uh, against Ukraine continues to grind on, and Russia is making very little headway. In fact, about the only thing they're doing is getting a lot of people killed—their own people, a number of Ukrainians, uh, of course, are dying. And uh, the longer this goes, of course, the the longer the threat continues for not just people in Ukraine, uh, but for all of Europe, and to a left, to a, to an extent, the rest of the world. And so, while today didn't lead to any major shocking moments uh, coming out of Putin's speech in Red Square, uh. It was more of the same. And that by itself is a problem. Uh, And uh, certainly there's more to talk about that. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Kevin will have some thoughts on that uh, if we get to that. So that, of course, is what's going on there. So let's move on to the next story, which is about an election in an island country in the middle of the Pacific. Here we go.
2: Bong Bong is also using, you know, the same songs, even the same red shirts that his father wore. The haircut, he's like a clone of his father.
1: That of course uh, is that's a uh, a professor of history at a uh, university in Manila talking about the what looks to be the apparent election of uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. to be the pr- new president of the Philippines. In the Philippines, presidents serve one six-year term, and the reason why that name is so important is that uh, Ferdinand F- Ferdinand Marcos Jr. or as he's affectionately known as Bong Bong, uh, is the son of Ferdinand Marcos Sr the legendary strongman, dictator, martial law ruler of the Philippines back in the 1980s, who famously, along with his wife Imelda, who owned famously thousands of pairs of shoes, effectively ruled with an iron fist over the Philippines. Estimates are, by Amnesty International and other human rights organizations, as many as 70,000 people were killed uh, in political repression by Marcos in the 1970s and 1980s. His family also siphoned away $10 billion, B with with a B, of uh, national treasure for the uh, for the Philippines, and spent it all on themselves. And so far, uh, since his ouster in 1986 in a peaceful revolution, uh, they've only been able to recover about three billion of that. Now, the thing that's notable about this is not just that this is Ferdinand Marcos's son, but that Marcos, his first of all, his running mate is Susan Duterte, who is the daughter of the outgoing Philippine president, strongman who has uh, made a lot of news in particular for cracking down violently on the drug trade. But for the most part, he's been killing petty criminals And mass. She is the vice presidential candidate. Uh, and so you have two of the most legendary strong men leaders in Philippine history about to have their children take over. And it has a number of human rights and democracy advocates in the Philippines deeply concerned. Marcos has particularly in the last few months, since he announced his candidacy, excuse me, in October used social media media, uh, to the nth degree, to whitewash his dad's record and to convince a number of people in the Philippines that things weren't that bad under his dad. And of course, it's been a generation since then. So there are a whole generation of Philippine voters, Filipino voters who ha- have no memory of Marco Sr. And so things like TikTok videos with little kids dancing around, uh, shouting out Bong Bong's name are going a long way. But for many people, many observers, this may be the beginning of the death of democracy in the Philippines which is a big deal because democracy in Asia has always been a bit fragile. And so losing another democratic uh, state there would not be a good thing. So if you haven't been paying any attention to the Philippines up until hearing this right now, I encourage you to start because what's happening there could be very important for the region. All right. And in a little bit of a happier story, but still one rooted in some struggle, let's hear about the revival of the world's first abolitionist newspaper. It's called The Emancipator.
0: We need to be emancipated from misinformation, disinformation, from extremism, from hate, from xenophobia. We have a lot to be emancipated from. So it's a perfect name.
1: Yeah, that is uh, the Emancipator, as was mentioned there. The first uh, abolitionist newspaper created in the United States. It came about in 1820 out of uh, Jonesboro, Tennessee, and became one of the most widespread newspapers read by uh, anti-slavery or abolitionist um uh, Uh, agitators during the lead up to the civil war. It published a number of pieces uh, by some of the leading abolitionists of the time, including Frederick Douglass and uh, has been famous ever since among historians for being a really important voice for those uh, against slavery. Now it's been revived as part of an effort out of Boston university, out of their communications school to effectively recast the emancipator in a new role to really address and agitate like it once did against slavery against a number of racial uh, issues in this country today. It's being run by a couple of uh, professors at uh, Boston University and uh, is going to have the backing of the Boston Globe. And so it's worth keeping in mind that this is probably a name you're going to see a little bit more of, and it is meant to be a place where a lot of voices um, talking about these issues will come together to talk about how society can really confront uh, issues of race, uh, move beyond them, uh, connect through them, uh, and more. And so it's just a really interesting moment, I think, to see an his old historical name get brought back in a new way. So that would be worth uh, paying attention to. All right. So um, now, on t- just a couple pieces of good news, okay, uh, just two pieces. Uh, scientists, uh, I, I didn't get where, sorry about that, but astronomers in particular have discovered that on Pluto, the planet, well, some say it's a planet, some say it's not, uh, on Pluto, there are gigantic ice volcanoes. And these ice volcanoes have water deep underneath, and that these volcanoes are constantly erupting. Back in 2020, scientists discovered that there is water on Pluto. But now, apparently, there are ice volcanoes, which is just like something out of a cool movie, somehow. Um, and of course, we should probably care about that. Anywhere where there is water um, on another body in the solar system or elsewhere, seems to indicate that maybe there's the possibility of life. Um, and, of course, a lot of movies lately about the uh, end of, uh, of of humanity focus on needing to send human beings to somewhere else where there's water. So Pluto apparently has one, has some water, but here's the problem. Shouldn't we have learned more about Pluto before we kicked him out of the solar system? Is Pluto really going to want to share their water with us after they've been so poorly treated? Uh, you know, it's, there's old no rule before you judge somebody, you know, maybe learn something more about them. Um, the problem is too, is they, they've got the upper hand on us because the moon of Titan around Jupiter, which is a gas giant that nobody can go to Titan, as it turns out, which has always been a place where people have said human beings may be able to go to, and may be habitable. Turns out their soil is made of some sort of cosmic dust that we can't identify, which means with our luck, if we landed on there, it would just dissolve us the second we got there. Um, so we should probably be, uh, a little nicer to Pluto. So as far as I'm concerned, Pluto is now a planet and Pluto, you are my friend. Okay. So, uh, now here's the second piece of good news. This one closer to home. Um, a Nepali man has broken his own world record for the second time in making the most summits of Mount Everest, (laughs) the world's tallest mountain. His name is Kami Rita Sherpa. And he set the record back in 2018 with 22 successful summits of the world's tallest mountain. He broke it again twice in 2019 after the last two seasons were canceled because of COVID. He just went out and broke it again. He's now made his 26th climb. Now, uh, Kami's father was also a guide, a well-known guide, taking people up the mountain. And so uh, Kami has been doing this since he was a teenager. Uh, 26 summits of one of the most dangerous uh, entities in the world. I hereby name Kami Rita as one of the world's top badasses, just on the basis of that. Um, and who can really argue that? That mountain is strewn with people who have tried to go up there and have not made it. And it begs the question, if this guy was this good for this long, why is everybody not hiring him to go up that mountain? Because all I know is if I'm going up that mountain, I'm going with him and I'm not going to worry about a thing because we've got Kami. You got me Rita Sherpa with us. Anyway, so congratulations to him because you got, you got to know very little phases, that guy. All right. And finally, uh, moving into our uh, conversation with Dr. Kevin Simpson today, I got to share with him my favorite story of the week, and I know that's one he'll appreciate. So let's listen to this.
0: Actually, this is about New York. <clears throat>
1: Kevin, you recognize those voices? Of course. Of course you do. Boys from Dublin. That's right. The boys from Dublin. We'll talk about them. That, of course, uh, just two of the boys from Dublin in that clip. Uh, Bono and the Edge, of course, of the uh, infamous band, uh, famous beyond measure, biggest band of the world as far as I'm concerned. You two. Th- that recording, though, was taken in a subway in Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. Uh, Bono and the Edge had traveled there at the invite of President Vladimir Zelensky uh, to not only uh, bring it to more attention to the plight of everyday Ukrainians, but also to give them some hope and to do something for them. So the Edge and Bono went and played a small acoustic set down in one of the subway tunnels, where a number of Ukrainians uh, continue to hide out um, under under Russian attack. And uh, the reason I put that out there is it's my favorite story of the week because it involves my favorite band. And that, of course, is, is it your fa- absolute favorite too, Kevin? Do we oh, have that in common? Yeah.
2: yeah of yeah, course.
1: Yeah. Of course. And uh, and Kevin and I have seen the band together in a number of places. I realized I did them. We've seen them in every major city in the Pacific Northwest. We've seen yeah, them. in so. yeah, right. yeah, we saw them in Portland. We saw them in Seattle. And then we saw them in Vancouver. And in fact, I've got a couple of hilarious like bad selfies that we tried to take care of ourselves in Vancouver when we were right down on the state by the stage that yeah, I'll, uh, yeah. that I'll post to embarrass us a little bit later. But uh, anyway, that was my favorite story of the week. Um, and effectively um, you know, just a reminder that in the midst of uh, a terrible war there, there's still a lot of humanity, a lot of hope and a lot of connection uh, going on between people all over the world. Okay. All right, Kevin. Now I have a story for you, your home t- for your hometown. I like to do this with every single guest. Uh, But your hometown, Littleton, Colorado, right? So from the Denver area. And I want to know if you know where this place is and if you know anything about it. And if you don't, it's not a problem because I did some work for you if you didn't. Uh, But it turns out right now in Littleton, according to Twitter, they are taking surveys asking residents of Littleton, Colorado, about the future of a place called Jackass Hill Park. Have you heard of Jackass Hill Park in your hometown?
2: I think so. I think it's where people go sledding, but I may be off on you that.
1: You are. It is on the south side of town. And so yeah. uh, apparently they're they're considering some major renovations to that place. Do you know about the history of Jackass Hill in your own town? No, actually. Okay, well, I I happen to know it because I, I looked it up. The town, of course, is named after Richard S. Little, um, who in 1872 established the town. And his Beast of Burden, a... guess a donkey or a mule called prince became really well known among people there and so the main street in the town apparently was named after this mule this jackass uh prince is there a prince street still in okay well that's where it comes from but then years later in 1917 1918 the people in the town thought it'd be a great idea they could make a lot of money by breeding mules that they could then sell to the u.s army in fighting world war one but the war ended before they could sell them and ship them so they had a number of jackasses just wandering around littleton and they needed a place to put them and so some say the animals were abandoned on jackass hill to just graze and that's where it got the name others say they were put there because that was the best place to put them in town but that is where jackass hill park came from in your hometown
2: fantastic and every town has jackasses, right? Every town has
1: jackasses. Every town. Every town you just, ident- you know, Littleton just likes to identify where all theirs can go. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's great. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, uh, that is Dr. Kevin Simpson, a uh, longtime friend of mine and a uh, really incredible scholar and incredible human being. And it's now time to, to introduce him. And so, Kevin, I want to take a little bit of time and um, just read an introduction okay, for you that will cover some of this stuff. And, of course, we'll come back to... A lot of this, as I mentioned, Kevin is professor of psychology at John Brown University uh, out in Arkansas, and uh, he completed his PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Denver. And in 2019, he was a Fulbright scholar to the Slovak Republic, and there he taught uh, graduate courses in sports psychology and psychology of the Holocaust at Is it Comenius University? Is that did I say that yeah. right? Comenius yeah. University in Bratislava, the capital. Um, Kevin's also been a research fellow three different times at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. And a fellow in the 2011 Summer Institute on the Holocaust and Jewish Civilization at Northwest University, Northwestern University. These are pretty prestigious things, by the way. Uh, His academic work has taken him all over Europe to many concentration camps and Holocaust memorial sites in Ukraine, Poland, France, Germany, Austria, and the former Czechoslovakia. He's also been visiting professor to two study abroad programs, one in London, one in Vienna. Uh, And uh, in the latter one, he taught on the genocidal uh, legacy of National Socialism in Austria. Uh, In 2016, uh, Kevin published a book that brings together, man, a lot of ways, Kevin, like a lot of your personal passions, uh, your deepest beliefs and this interest in the Holocaust, a book on soccer under Nazism and in the Holocaust called Soccer Under the Swastika. And uh, that is really a collection of a lot of firsthand accounts of uh, Holocaust survivors and their experience of what soccer was like for them, important to them, what it represented for them during the Second World War uh, and after. And it's had an updated edition that I just found out, which I'm excited to take a look at in uh, 2020. And uh, man, Kevin, that covers quite a bit. Um, So welcome to the show, man.
2: Thank you yeah you know what that to be really direct on this um that's a door that you opened because of those conversations we'd have you know, in your office just talking about the intersection between history and psychology and so um, mm-hmm. that encouragement um, those fellowships all of that um, started from that place so I, I i owe a debt of gratitude to you and you, you might have noticed that you're mentioning in the, the the acknowledgements of that mm-hmm. of those books both those books and mm-hmm. so uh, that really just kind of set me away it was really a mid-career kind of discovery And we can talk some more about, you know, what that actually looked like, but, um, it's just something that's kind of reinvigorated my professional life, even personal life. Um, my wife has been very tolerant and encouraging of my absences Mm. and uh, my kids have an interest in this stuff. Um, and so it's, it really does open doors even for other people, because there is something about certainly Nazism, but about the Holocaust that continues to captivate. And as we lose these witnesses, um, To time, basically, um, these stories I hope will carry on, and and people seem to be really interested because these are stories that weren't told much after the war.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and 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 of course it's understandable why, on some level, right? Soccer not nearly the most important thing uh, going on, but certainly we know from the history of sport that um, in certainly in terms of national identities, the return of soccer after the Second World War in places like West Germany and elsewhere turned out to be really important, you know, really important, you know, milestones if you will for those countries. I guess you could, for lack of a better term, re-entering uh, the community of nations. I mean, it's it's played yeah, quite a role. Certainly
2: for Germany, yeah. Yeah, certainly um, for Germany. A way to re- reunite. Um, certainly sport does that. Mm-hmm. Um, even going, you know, decades forward, when you consider what happened with rugby in South Africa after Mandela's released. Yeah. Um, these are very powerful stories. Um, soccer, even during the war, was a way certainly to divide, but also to, to reunify people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the, the Italian fascists, the, the Nazis tried to imitate what they were doing, but they, it was a way to rally around, of course, fascism. But um, sport sport does that, even of course, in our own time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and and even I was in I was inspired by the book of you know I I was fortunate that I got to hear a lot about it while you were you know putting it together, and I think I read a couple of a couple of excerpt drafts and things like that, and which was really cool. Uh, but uh, you know, in my own novel that I'm I'm trying to get published now, I actually uh, talk about a couple of uh, players from that era. It's an alternate history novel, but a couple of players yeah. from that era that I was introduced to in your book. So we'll uh, oh, I'll have to talk more about that. I'll send those to you when I when I'm thinking about it. Yeah, so it's I'm sure one of the first things that when when people hear that you wrote a book called Soccer Under the Swastika, one of the first questions is how did you bring those two together? Um, so how about we start there, Kevin, and then let's dig into something you said just a, a second ago, where history and psychology can intersect, because. Okay. You and I, we, we know what we both think on this, but let's let's talk about where that started for you, your love of soccer, and then this newer mid-career discovery of Holocaust studies. Where did this, how did this come together?
2: So whenever I would teach social psychology, um, there were often really useful and important illustrations for concepts where you're talking about propaganda, prejudice, discrimination, um, mass mobilization of people, um, you know, mass influence, all of that, and um, there were always examples from even pre-World War II, but going forward into the World War II sort of era. And as I dug deeper, I kept coming across testimonies and even photographs about uh, sport in, in, in the camps and ghettos just as it was playing out during the war. And it just captivated me because you know I played since I was a young coach for a long time, mm-hmm. played at university level, and there was just so much more to discover there. And you know, quite literally at each page that you unturn of a testimony, you realize there's something going on here because soccer was inspiration it also was a way to deal with boredom people don't realize a lot of times in concentration camps there was just a lot of boredom if you happen to be part of the privileged class you know keeping the camp running mm-hmm. um but it was also defiance you know so uh, soccer represented all these things you find boxing you find other sports in places like auschwitz or dachau and it was a way again to, to fight back especially against maybe german capos you know the the, mm-hmm. the leaders or the the block leaders but um really it was one photograph and it was uh an intentionally propagandistic photo that the nazis took early in 1934 i think it was um and you see these guys running around in tattered clothes they're barefoot they're playing in an open kind of dirt um, plaza plots or something like that Mm -hmm. and It's supposed to, you know, indicate that these prisoners are being well taken care of. They can play sport in their leisure time. And that just kept, again, opening doors for me, um, creating more and more questions. Um, Had a lot of really helpful folks in in different archives. Historians um, often would even sometimes translate bits and pieces for me. So I kind of knew what I was dealing with. And um, it just really unfolded from there. It was easy to, frankly, organize the book because you can do it by country. And each mm-hmm. country had its own encounter, so to speak, with Nazism. And it played out in, in very particular ways. So the harshest, of course, was in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, there, there's, a, there's stories there. Some of them are apocryphal or even mythological, but um, stories, again, of, of the local Ukrainians playing Nazi teams or allied teams. And, and these were really important matches. Um, and in fact, when I had a chance to go to Kiev when I was in Slovakia, I went to um, the stadium, which is semi-memorialized now. Uh, where they played some of these matches. So this stuff is still there. People know the stories. If they live in these neighborhoods by these places, they know these stories that their, their grandparents told them.
1: Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of, you know, in, in our own country, of course, the the legacy of, of sport um, and people remembering the histories of their teams and that, you know, the stories that their, their parents told of their favorite players and that type of thing. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because sometimes I think readers go, oh, yeah, this would be part of the larger national narrative of memory and yes. it, just like the NFL or Major League Baseball or the NBA or, or National Hockey League are in the United States, it's the same type of thing. And yet to have it associated with something so terrible, right, so apocalyptic and cataclysmic um, is going to have a binding sense uh, for for people over time. I think it's really interesting because those stories and those connections help explain, even if it's not about soccer, I think, the defiance we see in Ukraine currently. Right. This where so many people were were killed in the Holocaust and there was so much bloodshed uh, there, both from the Nazi occupation and then the Soviets coming back and retaking it. Um, you know, the so-called Holocaust by bullets that focus in in studies of in recent years. that has been more about the Holocaust as perpetrated outside of the of the main killing centers, the six main killing centers. A lot of that happened in Ukraine. Right. So it's it's. All these things, that living memory is is super powerful. So, Kevin, let's, uh, let's pause here really quick to take our first break. And then when we come back, we'll kind of build off of this a little more because I want to dig a little deeper into sort of this labor of love for you and then talk a little bit more about our connection. So we'll be right back hey. after we hear from a, a message from our sponsor, Airway Science for Kids. And uh, we'll be back with Kevin Simpson on this show is all about you. Stick around.
0: kids never have trouble dreaming about their future, the challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org airway science for kids providing aerospace for all don't ask me to talk don't ask me to talk is a program about sharing something good hosted by me stacy heller with my co-host and my mom's favorite eric Ryder. don't ask me to talk echoes what we're talking about when we aren't being so serious we'll highlight what's good to watch read see listen to and more With a reoccurring spot with Vance Dinkfelder of Dinkfelder's Delicatessen called What Are We Eating? Tune in Thursdays from 3 to 4 on AM 880 KIXI.
1: Hey, welcome back everybody to this show is all about you. I am JDK Winnekin, your host here with Dr. Kevin Simpson, author of the book Soccer Under the Swastika, um, but he's so much more than just that. So, th- Kevin, thanks for again for being here. And uh, we were talking before the break uh, about sort of where all this came from for you, uh, this uh, discovery, mid-career discovery of Holocaust studies coming out of psychology. And it's one of the one of the things that you and I uh, first connected on as friends and, and colleagues back in my old academia days, uh, from my history work uh, teaching about Nazi Germany and about the Holocaust. And then, as you uh, alluded to, we started having some conversations. About the coming together or the overlap points between history and psychology, and that seemed to be something that really uh, energized this whole thrust for you—not just the book, but you know, going overseas and doing these teaching fellowships and that type of thing. Can you tell uh, tell us a little bit about how you see those connections working? What's the overlap, and where does where does psychology and history meet for you? And why is that an instructive path to follow, whether we're talking about the Holocaust or anything else?
2: Yeah, great question. So. I think it begins with maybe the most obvious connection is is that both fields have a shared interest or concern about the human condition. Mm -hmm. And from that, then you realize there are lots of ways where we can offer maybe unique interpretive um, sort of understandings. They may overlap, they may be distinct and separate from each other. Um, I think there are also some ways because psychology has entered into this discussion, I think more recently, maybe the last 20 or 30 years, that even with those old interpretive models that you know may go back to some of the classic theorists right um we realize that we're always looking to update those understandings with modern research and so for instance one great example of this um at nuremberg you know the the, the justice trials after the war i'll try to keep this really brief yeah. um, they used ink plots, they used interviews they used the psychiatric tools of the day and it was again in the 1980s that they revisited that. In the 90s, and they realized some of those old interpretations were way off; they were wrong. And so, modern psychology, I think, allows us to certainly update, improve, better our understanding. Um, I discovered this maybe four or five years into teaching the Holocaust. There was a psychologist at the University of Illinois named Rosen who went over before basically the war is over and starts interviewing people. So he's he's coming up face to face with trauma he's coming Mm -hmm. face to face with grief and loss of course so many couldn't even understand and articulate it but he's there and it's it's about collecting data but it's not just about that because as a a jewish psychologist in that day um, he sees a human need that he's trying to address so for me this idea of this shared Passion or concern for the human condition is is a big part of it. Um, Both fields are really interested in motivations, intentions. Mm -hmm. We may land at different places on that, but... Mm -hmm. um, we saw this in our friendship as it blossomed and, and first developed and blossomed. This is about a dialogue. We're engaged in a dialogue with each other and I think both enrich each other's field. And I see this more and more at Holocaust conferences, the more in- interdisciplinary than maybe they were 20 years ago. Yeah, um, I've been quite grateful because people have, have welcomed me with open arms. In many cases um, I used to joke that I kind of uh, uh, pretended to be a historian and it wasn't <laughs> until I really, got deeper into the field uh, with these fellowships, the one you recommended me for, right, Mm -hmm. at the Holocaust Museum in in 2009, incredibly formative. And so there are conversations that, again, I've been a part of, uh, for instance, at at another conference where we're talking about second generation trauma, even third generation trauma and what that looks like with Jewish studies folks, psychologists and historians. And um, it really just is mutually a blessing. It truly is.
1: Yeah, so. it, it really does. And, you know, and, and don't feel bad about pretending to be a historian. I pretend to be a <laughs> psychologist all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um many of us, right? you're right. Right. I'm my, I'm my only patient. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of people around the world who are really thankful for that. But nevertheless, <laughs> no, I get it because I think you're right. I from my from my side of things, uh, studying the human condition certainly, but I think, you know, his, historians and psychologists were both interested in individual motivations and then group dynamics as a result, yeah. right? And the of yeah, sure. group dynamics on individuals and what that does to everything from ideas to, for me, it was sort of memory of the past. It's one reason I'm so fascinated yes. to keep hitting on what Putin is doing in Ukraine. Yes. So many of those, and they cross over quite a bit. And and I, some of my more rewarding times uh, in, our, in our academic collaborations when we presented papers at conferences where a lot of people were really genuinely intrigued by what we were doing. And it seemed like the most natural thing for you and I. Maybe- yes. we, yeah, maybe because it was born out of conversations over lunch or conversations yes. over dinner or, um, you know, walking around on a soccer field, you know, watching watching your then young son, you know, kick the ball around. You know, maybe it's for that reason, but nevertheless, it seems to me it's always been a, a real big area for healthy collaboration and mutual exploration. Um, yeah, it's big. Yeah. And I, I, I mentioned the you mentioned the Holocaust Memorial Museum fellowships. I, I had done one of those, I think, the year before uh, that one of those teaching fellowships and had recommended yeah. you for one. And then, um, I remember, I think it was it that year that, or was it another one that I, I kind of, I kind of met you up in DC and, and kind of tagged along to one of those. That was the one in 2009. Was that the, that was the year you did that the first, was the one, first right?
2: one? Yeah, that was my kind of door opener. Um, yeah, what was it? We were, we were in the second week of a two week seminar. Each day we would break for lunch. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted me to elaborate on this. Yeah, yeah no, we, go ahead,
1: because this this was yeah. our own direct experience with the continued legacy of anti-Semitism and and hate exactly, yeah. that really has fueled so, a lot of our conversations and our work. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, second week, uh, breaking for lunch. They're very generous, you know, catered lunch, that sort of thing. Very spoiled academics, that kind of thing. And um, uh, just we're a little bit late, and uh, people are kind of milling about, ready to, to 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 take lunch, and we hear this pop pop pop. And it sounded like if you ever been to the Holocaust Museum, there's a long brick staircase. It sounded like a metal cart going down the stairs. Maybe somebody mm-hmm. lost control of it. But the folks who were in public safety or criminal justice, they knew immediately what was going on and they moved quickly to the door to secure it. Um and then within you know a few seconds, we realized okay, there's been a shooting, something's going on out there. Yeah. Um, you hear people screaming, um, you hear people running about. Um Bizarrely enough, among many bizarre things, uh, people are trying to actually get in the room and, and it's, it's essentially on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're quickly instructed you know, to huddle under desks and we realized this, this is going very badly. And um, eventually they, they, they clear the room, they clear the museum. Uh, we later find out that a white supremacist had stopped his car on the busy street in front of the museum, um, came to the door in a long trench overcoat, um, and as, a, as one of the museum guards opened the door to let him in, he pulls a gun and, and shoots him down right there on the side. And uh, we quickly learned that the man, his name's Stephen Johns, um, was the same gentleman who had checked us in each morning as we yeah. come in, you know, 7.30 or 8. So um, we we knew we knew him a little bit and had, you know, brief conversations. But uh, when you go to the museum now, uh, very very close to the front, there's a, a memorial plaque for him. But uh, uh, the, the the consequences of hate uh, were not lost on, on on that moment, and what was even remarkable, even more remarkable, I think, is that just two days later, the museum reopens, and uh, people basically can't get in because they realize the importance of this place and in, in mm-hmm. what it stands for, both in memorializing history but also carrying forward. So these are issues that are obviously still with us, and in fact, since that time, anti-Semitism has has only gotten on the rise.
1: Yeah, it has, and you know, it's and it it's probably not something that we can connect back directly to that incident. A number of people listening may remember that upon hearing Kevin say that, and uh, and the and the man who did that, an 88-year-old man as it turned out, died in custody, so he never went on trial uh, for that. Yeah. Uh, and I know that the the Holocaust Museum and the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies memorialized uh, uh, Stephen Johns in a number of different ways. I think there's there's scholarships in his name, that type of thing. But I remember that being not. Besides, once you and I got past the sort of the personal fear of that, right? To to really encounter that ourselves, when you study it academically, it's one thing. You never expect to necessarily confront the same type of hate that you've been studying the effects of in in many past years right directly. Uh, I remember that was a that was a huge moment, I think, for you and me too, personally, not just individually, but as friends. It's something that I know we haven't talked about it too often. But it's almost like I've I've always remembered it as like we f- we understood on a visceral level more so than we would have otherwise the stakes of this type of work and the reason why continuing to talk about and study the Holocaust and advocate about lessons about it continues to be important. It seems so obvious now in light of the last handful of years, you know, as Holocaust denial has gone up and things like that, that this should be that this should be something that's a given. Uh, but this is a real battle, isn't it? This this uh, this this battle to continue to teach about the lessons of the holocaust and apply them to today no better example than what we dealt with that day
2: yeah very much so and the revisionism that we hear coming out of moscow is just one more example of this right mm-hmm. in fact early on in the war you'll remember that some of the uh early russian shelling um landed near babi yar yeah uh, where i think one of the, where the television towers are and uh, again just another insult uh to the to the dire situation there uh, we we hear stories also of Holocaust survivors not being able to get out, and so mm-hmm. this is a history. Yes, it's still with us, but it, it's one that's going to carry forward simply because, um, as they call it, the longest hatred. It, it's not going away, um, and unless we fight back against it, um, that was one of the other motivations for me for writing this book and why I continue to teach this class. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so grateful my students are interested in this because this could be this could feel like we're talking about you know the Middle Ages or something. Um, right. It seems remote to them, but. Um, I'm so grateful for their interest. and we, we we begin early on in the course, you know, the first month talking about why this matters. Um, and anti-Semitism is situated right at the center of that.
1: Yeah. Have you found yeah, have you found over the last, you know, however many years an increase in interest in this? has it has it gone yeah. up?
2: Yeah, And we live in an interesting part of the country, right? with, I mean, regrettably, I, I could take you to, uh, parts of our our town. This is isolated, but you you'll see a Confederate flag flying every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, it it angers me every time I see it. Um, but there are these vestiges of that that old South that um, give us plenty of reason to 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 make that connection between all sorts of hate, right? Yeah. Um, and in what we see now going on in other parts of the world, synagogues yeah. being attacked and and so on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's easy to look back on that now. However many years ago that was, you know, 13 years ago coming up. And kind of look and see the arc of the increase in anti-Semitism around the country, around the world since then. Uh, And it literally has not gone away and doesn't seem to be going away. I I do wonder, um, you know, about the psychological elements and historical elements of how World War II is being used and talked about uh, in this war uh, in in Ukraine. You know, certainly because, you know, as as Zelensky said today, as a response to Putin's Victory Day uh, parade speech, uh, said, you know, uh, Ukrainians fought the Nazis, too. Right? and and, and we, we beat them too, right? Now, also what you know, doesn't get mentioned necessarily often is there were a number of Ukrainians who assisted the Nazis at points. There was a Ukrainian SS division. And it's not to say that the stories of, of Ukrainian resistance against the Nazis are not true. There's plenty of them. But as you know, that part of the world, it was a mixed bag. You know, there were people who collaborated. There were people who resisted. There were people who just stayed out of the way as best they could, and that's why the, it's so dyed in the wool, the fabric of Memory and existence and politics and rhetoric in that part of the world that uh, it wouldn't surprise me if you if you have more and more people asking you about things like this uh, and the war. Your opinion is that happening?
2: Yeah, you hit it right on the head. Um, especially through the lens of psychology. This is where students can access this history and mm-hmm. understand it a lot better. It is really easy to make the Nazis some exotic evil. I mean, you, you see this in, in too many movies, right? Yeah, uh, the swastika, the nasty Nazi. Um, certainly that was part of the story, but if they, if they see this hate, this evil as something outside of them, they'll never, first of all, they'll never understand it fully, but then they won't realize that they have a role to play here. And We often talk about bystanders, upstanders, and so on in, in response to this. Mm-hmm. And this is where we, we can normalize the evil. If you want to think about that, way. I know that's a weird phrase, but, yeah. um, to help them see this is not something so far removed from them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important because, you know, I've, I've used the example with, with students before. We like, we like to treat the Nazis like they're animals at the zoo. They're behind glass. Yep. We can study yep. them, read the placard, you know, ooh and ah and marvel and be a little afraid of them and then move on to the monkey cage, right, when yep. it's not that way at all. And we've seen a lot of that in the last few years. And I think, to me, what I hope turns out to be one of the, one of the gifts of the struggles around this over the, over the last few years is that there's a generation of students, a generation growing up here in Europe and around the world that recognizes that this is important because pretty soon living memory of the Holocaust, there'll be just as many people who have living memory of the Holocaust as there are people who remember ancient Rome zero, yeah. you right. know, and what do we do after that? Right. It's, it's a big question. And, um, you know, when, when you hear the slogans of never again and, and that type of thing, they mean something. When we take a look at what, uh, what is happening in Ukraine, particularly as more stories are coming out about what is happening to civilians. Um, these cries are really real right um so that's yeah. really that's yes. really interesting really interesting so um really quick kev before we uh, take another quick break uh, and then move into the end of the show here uh what's next for you in this didn't you guys just get an award didn't you and somebody just get an Did, award from yes. a pretty prestigious so, entity
2: yeah in Slovakia uh, when I was there I had discovered this little factoid of sorts that in the northern part it was actually well, like sorry I'm gonna get overwhelming with the history here so I'll simplify <laughs> um that one of the Premier League's football teams in Slovakia, their stadium had been built by Jewish laborers in 1940, 41, roughly. Wow. Um, It was a story that was known, but nothing had been done about it. So I think the Jewish community tried to do something with it. So long story short, uh, we were able to install a plaque that memorialize the 250 laborers who were part of that story um when you go there they've renovated the stadium it's now a 360 sort of pitch but the old original grandstand um, is is very much this old concrete uh, construction so that led to a relationship with the now director of the jewish museum in in bratislava and then he did an exhibit on a jewish um, coach who ended up coaching the austrian national team very well known actually my Fulbright director, bizarrely enough, um, her dad had been coached by this guy back in the day. So uh, these two projects, the memorial plaque, and then this exhibit um, for this this uh, footballer coach named Stasny, um, that led to the recognition, the Honorary uh, Memorial, it's called the Julius Hirsch Honorary Prize for people outside of Germany, that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, we, we got the news in November, just three weeks later, they flew us uh, to Frankfurt for, for the ceremony, and it was it was probably my high, career highlight for sure. I bet. Went to a football match. It was, oh it was goodness. glorious.
1: So um, that, was, that was the German football federation giving that to you. Yeah. Correct?
2: Yeah. Like, you know, the NFL equivalent over there. This, yeah. this is the biggest sporting organization. So yeah, that amazing. feels a little braggy. I don't mean it that way, but we, we're going to continue the work. we got a small monetary prize, uh, for more educational outreach. So we're, we're actually working on the next project. I'll, I might go there over the winter and, and consult some more. So nice. very gratifying and, and humbling a bit because, um, this, this tells us that the, the, a lot of people are paying attention. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is,
1: yeah. which is a good thing. And we'll, we'll discuss off the air why I yeah. didn't get an invite to go on that trip with you. Um, but <laughs> but uh, there was probably nothing you had to say about that. But anyway. Um, all right. Well, congratulations on that. That's massive, right? Just the fact that your work has led to active commemoration uh, and has been recognized uh, in that part of the world by such an important entity, one of the biggest sports organizations in the world. Uh, yeah, no wonder that feels like a major feather in your cap because it is. So thank you. Yeah, great. Fantastic. All right, let's take another quick break, Kevin. Then when we come back, we'll uh, we'll finish up. We'll be right back, everybody, right. with Doctor Kevin Simpson on this show is all about you. Stick around.
0: Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, Along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids providing aerospace for all.
1: All right. Welcome back, everybody, to this show is all about you. And I'm here with Dr. Kevin Simpson, uh, professor of psychology, author of Soccer Under the Swastika, uh, award winner from the German Football Federation. I mean, there's lots of different things. Um, And uh, so, Kevin, you know, this is pretty heavy stuff we've been talking about, and and you and I have always been able to, in our in the years of our friendship, going on twenty years now, been able to pivot between these heavy duty subjects like this and things that aren't quite so heavy duty. So, in, in the spirit of helping people come out of this heavy conversation, at right the last, yeah, let's, let's 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 hit in on some of those things. Um, first of all, so um, we talked about our shared love of a particularly famous Irish uh, quartet. Uh, how many times have you seen them? In concert and i know i'm going to be tooting you know, my own horn here a little bit but i'm yeah, thinking times about it,
2: it it's probably half the number of times you've seen them i remember talking about that feeling very inferior in that <laughs> way but probably 10 or 11.
1: okay yeah And
2: three or four of them in the last four years yeah um, so yeah
1: yeah yeah. 10 or 11. Yeah, yeah i my...
2: missed i missed the 360 tour which was you know a spectacle on spectacle Hell Yeah, um always regret that I mean, here's here's another little nugget i don't know if i ever told you this but The Red Rocks tour or the Red Rocks show way back in 83. Uh This will date me certainly, but I don't care. Um, I had high school buddies who went to that because it was in Denver. That's actually where I graduated. Uh, We had our graduation ceremony at Red Rocks. And I always regret not going to that show. I think I had a chance, but I never went. um,
1: Why did you say no? Why did you say no? I don't know. I don't know.
2: (laughs) I had it maybe 16 and stupid ah that's of, all right you know, 50 something and stupid it, ha-
1: it happens well my that was the first tour that I I saw them on that was my first concert I was 10 years old I saw them at the Los Angeles sports arena on that war tour I think Red the Red Rock show was just a few weeks later and I have not uh-huh. missed a tour since then uh yeah. and so yeah I'm up to 33 now uh it it's oh, it's uh, it's an illness, <laughs> but you know what, if it's, uh, yeah. yeah. It. And, and real, and really quickly, I mean, I, I think I know the answer to this, but, um, certainly that's a band that has very similar kind of shared global awareness and, and advocacy and things like that around things that I know you care about and things that I care about. Anything you want to say on that? Why you like you them? You know,
2: I, um, you two has, a has a station on Sirius XM and I had a chance to do one of those um, desire shows. It's a 30 minute pick your top five songs. Oh, wow. And I'll, I'll kind of repeat a little bit of what I said there. For me, this is a band that told me or that taught me how to be passionate about things to pay attention to what's going on. It, it's really easy to be sanctimonious, honestly, and, it and a it full of yourself when you talk about this stuff. So um, for me, it was it was it was, it was about being earnest. It was okay to be earnest. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I remember my friends making fun of me in college. It was good natured usually, uh, but I'd have Amnesty um, International stuff on my dorm, hanging from my loft, this kind of thing, mm-hmm. pictures of, of of concerts, this kind of thing. And even though I took some flack for it, um, it, it was an encouragement to say, you know, this stuff matters. This music matters. It's fun. It's rock and roll, uh, but it also is, is, it has meaning, right? So mm-hmm. for me, it was about being earnest, caring about the world, paying attention—yeah, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, they—they they always seemed to talk about things that mattered. You know, they—the songs yeah. they sang sounded different, uh, different types of lyrics, and they—they t- they talked about things in ways that I just related to um, emotionally and intellectually. When even as a teenager, so a real similar thing for me there. So, and I got to say, some of my favorite memories are um, of of my life are going to those shows with you because there's nothing better than going to a show with a band that you love. Um, then doing it with somebody who loves them just as much and knows exactly. them just as yeah. much. And I think that show in Vancouver, where we were about five feet away from the stage, uh, will yeah. be a, will be a lifelong, uh, favorite oh, memory. Yeah, 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 it was good yeah. stuff. So here's a,
2: here's a little bookmark, JD. Okay. Um, sometime in the next probably two year window, I'm going to teach, um, a course on psycho uh, on YouTube and faith for our honors college. So oh. you'll be getting a call, um, guest lecture kind of thing. So that's, that's in the works. <laughs> I know a lot of faculty have done these classes over the U. you know, across the U S and in Ireland, I'm sure. Oh like, my goodness.
1: Uh, a, little, a little bookmark there. Oh, that's, you just made me really happy. Make sure you give me a whole day to <laughs> myself. Cause that's, what's going to come. That's what's going to come. right? Okay, man, let's, let's wrap up with a quick speed round. Okay. Of some quick questions. So, uh, you ready? Just answer yep. right off the top of your head, and I'll 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 make these links available to these things on wordsbyjdk.com la- later this week. What's uh What's a book you've read that you think everybody should read?
2: Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Oh yeah, um, yeah, psychiatrist Viennese who was caught up in the war, um, but also developed an existential therapy. Uh, the psychology still uses. Right. Okay. Yeah, search for meaning.
1: Yep. I got even less time than I thought, so we got to keep moving. Um, yeah. <laughs> what's What's a movie or television show that stops your channel surfing in its tracks?
2: Uh, that would be the Sherlock reboot, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch, the Ooh, BBC one. Yeah, sure,
1: that's a good one. Yep. Uh, favorite food that you can't resist eating no matter when it's offered?
2: Probably brick oven pizza.
1: Oh, pepperoni or no? Uh,
2: pepperoni for sure.
1: Absolutely. Okay, and yeah. then this one's a curveball. Why is my team, Tottenham, better than your team, Manchester United?
2: Because our players are rubbish. We're owned by two (laughs) Americans who don't know what the heck they're doing, and we need a proper manager. (laughs) Okay.
1: Those are all good reasons.
2: Number two team, by the way. If I had to go with a London team, that would be them.
1: Sure. Well, we'll let you on that bandwagon, my friend, just because you know me and that's how it works. So, Kevin, thank you so much for uh, taking this time. I know we're going to want to bring you back, um, and I'll have a follow up on wordsbyjdk.com. And thanks so much for uh, coming out and spending That's this it. time with us. Appreciate it. Yeah.
2: Thank you for the invite.
1: Yeah. Good to see you, buddy. Okay. Thank, thank you, you to all of you listening to this episode of this show is all about you. Just a couple quick thank yous. This show is all about you is produced and distributed by Hubbard radio, Seattle. Eric Ryder is the in-studio producer, editor, and mix master show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of airway science for kids. Check them out at airside.org. The original theme music for the show is by Dave Nelson of lens group media. And this week, I'd like to give all my creative thanks uh, to a whole group of people, to Kevin Simpson, to Stephanie Simpson, uh, to <laughs> Tawny Santabria, Julie, uh, Julia uh, Cannell, Stacey Heller, Eric Crema, Katie Beck, and uh, Bono the Edge, Larry Mullen Jr., and Adam Clayton, the four bandmates of U2. Thanks to all of you for uh, joining me on this uh, episode, and check us out next week. Until then, chins up, everyone.